This episode is sponsored by Gentex Corporation. Gentex is a longtime supplier of electro-optical products for the global automotive, aerospace, and fire protection industries. Visit www.gentex.com to check out the latest in digital vision, connected car, and dimmable glass technologies. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Shift, a podcast about mobility. I'm your host, Pete Bigelow, reporter at the Automotive News. How are you doing, Pete? This is Leslie Allen, and welcome to the show, everybody. Thanks, Leslie. I'm doing great today, and we'll be doing even better when, uh, when we bring up our conversation here momentarily with today's guest, who is Andrew Maynard, a professor at Arizona State University and director of the school's Risk Innovation Lab among his many hats. Uh, More on that in just a minute, uh, but we'll be talking about automotive safety, technology, innovation, and how we plan for for the future uh, very broadly. A really great conversation that I'm excited to to, uh, bring to the audience today. But first, Leslie, uh, in the mobility world, kind of a a downcast week, more more of these electric vehicle companies getting in uh, in trouble with, with Wall Street and the Securities Exchange Commission. Uh, I know uh, you were paying some attention to the latest with uh, the company known as Elms, the electric last mile solutions company. What what happened there? Yeah, for those who don't know, um, electric last mile solutions is a commercial EV maker. And this week, or I should say last week, the leaders of the company resigned. Um, the we're talking about the CEO and the chairman both resigned, and this was after an investigation that found that they had purchased discounted equity in the company just before it went public. So, um, and they've had to restate their financial statements going all the way back to uh, the company's inception in 2020. So, um, not very good times right now for Elms. No, neither for Faraday Future, uh, a similar situation in which uh, an internal review identified some inaccurate statements made by employees to investors. uh, And this is just kind of this continuation of the story of all these companies that went public via, I shouldn't say all these companies, but many of these companies that uh, went public via SPACs last year are, are now kind of wading into troubled waters, obviously. Nikola, Lordstown Motors uh, started that, and, and most recently now we have Elms and Faraday. I know there's others as well, but but Leslie, on a more upbeat note, uh, you know we have our conversation with Andrew momentarily talking about the future, and I know that was the the broad subject of the latest Shift magazine, which which drops today. It indeed drops today, and we're really excited about this issue of the magazine. We are looking at the future. We are looking at what happens with transportation in 2035 and beyond. And the reason that we chose the year 2035 is that is the year when many of the automakers are saying, hey, we're going to have all electric vehicles on the road by then. And even the federal government is saying we're going to stop buying gasoline-powered transportation by 2035. So we thought, what better year to 
use to take a look at the future. We look at what's happening with autonomous vehicles. We found some experts and asked them, what do you think? Are we going to be able to actually buy an AV by 2035? And you'll be surprised at some of the answers that they gave us. We looked at everything from electrification of RVs and also, Pete, you did a wonderful story looking at high-speed rail. That's right. I did, Leslie. And it's a, I really enjoyed this one because we really looked at transportation writ large, not just one particular mode or, or silo. Uh, speaking of 2035, I guess we did not ask Andrew specifically about what transportation looks like in that year, but we did ask him about how the future gets shaped. Uh, and this is a terrific conversation. Uh, I'm really excited. So maybe uh, without further ado, Let's, uh, let's go to our conversation with Arizona State Professor Andrew Maynard. Andrew, great to have you on the podcast today. Uh, thanks so much for making the time. This is great to be here. Uh, you know, I know I've gotten to know you a little bit while we've discussed automated driving technology in the past, uh, but before we dive into that specifically, uh, can you just give our, our listeners uh, an introduction to who you are, uh, where your, your broad expertise lies, and, and kind of what you do? Sure. Yeah, this is always complicated. So I, I as you know, I started life as a, a physicist and worked for many years in, in research labs. But really, my focus these days is asking big questions about technology innovation, where it's going, how it intersects with society and how it impacts our future. Um, and it cuts across not only specific tech domains, everything from self-driving cars to gene editing, but importantly, where everything sort of comes together and, and collides in really weird ways. It is interesting how this, uh, yeah, I guess universe might be the right word. It's all interconnected is something that uh, we find ourselves saying quite often. Um, so maybe before we dive into automotive technology or transportation technology here, uh, I want to ask you about the current state of safety uh, in, in human driving right now. Right. We, just got, we just got the latest statistics from, from NHTSA last week that show uh, more than 31,000 people killed in the first nine months of 2021. Right. Uh, it's just, you know, increasingly worrisome trend. The numbers are going in the wrong direction. So, so how should I as a driver evaluate risk <laughs> every time I get behind the wheel these days? You know, actually, it's really tough because those numbers are frightening. 30,000 people a year killed on U.S. roads and many, many more injured. Um, so there's clearly a, an important issue there. On the other hand, there are a lot of people driving on the roads, and there are many, many millions of miles driven each year. Um, and so it's actually hard to put that, that figure in context. And I'm, I'm sort of torn here as a risk expert. So I mean, this is one of the things I do. I, I, I look at different ways of, of thinking about risk. On one hand, there's the part of me that says, we've got to lower those figures. Even one death is one death too many. We've got to do everything we can to lower it. Um, and then there's another part of my brain that looks at human drivers and I think, what are we thinking putting people behind the wheels of these sort of one-ton death machines? I, people are the worst possible things to put in cars. We are really bad drivers. But then I look at the figures in terms of the number of deaths per miles driven, and it's amazing we don't have more people killed. So there's, there's something weird going on where actually despite all of our flaws as humans, we drive better than I would imagine. And that's a really weird thing to say, because I think humans are really bad drivers, but actually we're safer than I would expect us to be. So then making sense of that, especially within the context of how we use new technologies to ensure our roads are safe, gets 
challenging because you've got to focus and you've got to sort of factor in the human element of this with the safety element. So how do we as a society address these rising figures? I mean, where do we yeah. go? So we've, I, I think we've got to take a holistic approach um, and you've got to balance sort of the, the benefits of driving and that goes all the way from the personal benefits around mobility to how it actually allows our society to, to operate to what our tolerances are for, for risk. Um, and if you don't sort of balance the, the pros and cons, it's very, very hard to have uh, this conversation. But one of the things I would say is if you start from the perspective that mobility is important for society, um, deaths are something we want to avoid, there are multiple ways of addressing that. And you actually need to start from the perspective of asking, do we need to create a society where we're not so reliant on fast cars? So even before you get to technology um, innovation where you're looking at automation, just asking what is the whole gamut of possibilities here? Now, within the last few months, we've heard the US Department of Transportation and the NTSB talk about a quote, safe system approach. It seems like uh, that can incorporate things like training people to be better drivers, exploring more public transportation options, changing the road infrastructure itself. So I have a two-part question for you, Andrew. One, uh, does a safe system approach track with your notions of the right solution? And also, why do all of these things seem like heavy lifts compared to... <laughs> New automotive technology. I know. Yeah. So, so yes, it does. I think a safe system approach is, is a good way of approaching things. I think there needs to be some sophistication there um, when we begin to think about what does safety mean? What are the things that we're trying to protect? Does it just mean protecting people's lives? Does it mean protecting people um, from physical injury? Or does it mean giving people the opportunities to live safe and, and vibrant lives? But the systems approach, I think, is critically important. The challenge we face is humans and human behaviors and human expectations. So we've built a whole society over the last 50 plus years around people having a lot of freedom with how they drive. So to change almost anything systemically, we've got to change how people think and how people behave and what people expect. Andrew, I'm curious just to start this out uh, in terms of automated driving technology. Uh, from your vantage point today, do you see human drivers as still safer and or more competent than, than the automated drivers we see on the road? Or, or how do we compare those two things? Uh, it's complex. Um, so in certain circumstances, I see um, autonomous vehicles as actually getting very close to being safer. Um, I have to contextualize that because it is very dependent on the road systems and the road conditions we're in. So at the moment, even if you look at the, the best in class, um, autonomous vehicles aren't as agile, as adaptable as humans. And yet, if you look at a standard condition, say you take a, a freeway and you just sort of see people drive down it. Um, what we've seen with a number of autonomous systems is that they're very good at both projecting what the traffic is doing, predicting what it's doing, and maneuvering safely in a way that humans don't do because we're distracted by everything else that's going on. Um, so that's where the context comes in. But if you're looking at sort of overall safety, we've got a long, long way to go. So to give you one example, if you're looking at sort of um, driving down sort of 
roads where the layout is somewhat complex, there are a lot of distractions around, it's very hard to predict what's happening, and systems where humans rely on the ways they, they interface with other humans to navigate it safely. Um, whether it's the sort of, um, sort of human driver to the human driver sort of stop or come on sort of signals, either with the look you give them or the hand signals and things like that. Machines can't do that yet. Machines can't interact with humans in the same way as we do. And there's a lot to safety around how we actually signal with other people on the roads. I'm curious, you know, in the context of the, the traffic death spike that we were talking about uh, a moment ago, you know, there's, there's been these half dozen or maybe dozen deaths related to either testing self-driving technology or, or, you know, stemming from crashes that occurred with driver assist technology. At the same time, you know, we're losing more than 100 people a day in, in regular right. traffic. So can you help me think about how we should, I don't know, if weigh these two things or how do we think about deaths in terms of testing new technologies versus what's happening on the road every day? Sure. We simply can't compare them at the moment um, because the number of miles driven by autonomous vehicles um, is so much smaller than the number of miles driven by humans plus the fact that types of drivers are different. So I'll give you a specific example. You look at um, the drivers of Teslas with um, FSD beta at the moment. Um, so many miles driven with FSD beta, it's been pretty successful in terms of a lack of serious crashes. And yet those drivers, by and large, are drivers that are committed to testing the system and driving as safely as possible. These are not your teenagers who have no idea what they're doing. They're experienced drivers. And so maybe it's not surprising that we haven't seen any major incidents. And that's where it gets difficult comparing the two. But even more than that, we've got to ask ourselves the question, is the comparability between a machine killing someone versus a human? And we know from just how humans think about technology and think about risk, there's something that we like less about a machine autonomously killing someone than a human driver killing someone. So again, the metrics aren't going to be comparable. Now, you mentioned the example of an FSD uh, driver being like a teenager behind the wheel. So, and uh, you've also mentioned before that um, a Waymo self-driving system is akin to an elderly driver on the right, road. Right, yes. So, is one of those better than the other? <laughs> um, I don't know, because we're on a steep learning curve here. Um, I will tell you that I am far more comfortable driving on a road where you've got other vehicles that are behaving like very cautious elderly drivers um, because their, their aim is to be more cautious and less sort of risk um, accepting um, as opposed to a whole bunch of learner drivers. So yes, the comparison I made with FSD beta was it feels like a learner driver that has been maybe been out on the road once or twice. It's still learning the rules of the road. Um, and it scares the life out of me thinking about being surrounded by a bunch of learner drivers who really have no idea what they're doing and they haven't quite learned how to do this well yet yeah and they're getting the update uh to enable this technology right, right. in their vehicle over the air over the air software updates so and this is uh pretty revolutionary but is it okay i mean do we have a regulatory system set up to evaluate whether this is an acceptable level of risk. And, and, and we don't, and this is part of the challenge here. So I 
I actually, I like this approach. I think it's important that Tesla are pushing the boundaries here and, and really forcing us to innovate with how we improve road safety. So this idea of over-the-air updates, it means that you can fix problems incredibly fast. On the other hand, we have no regulatory structure. So the organization that is deciding what is safe and what is appropriate here is the company that's pushing out the updates. So that level of accountability does worry me. I'm curious, Andrew, from a, you know, that regulatory perspective, or let's call it DOT or NHTSA, uh, it seems like we have very different levels of acceptance for, for something that might be a software problem or software fix versus a, something that's a hardware problem or, or you know, hardware fix. Is that, it, is that what we're set up for? Is, is that, it that's the world? That's part of the, the mindset shift that, that we need. So absolutely, we've built up a whole industry and a whole regulatory approach largely around the hardware. And of course, we've seen some changes in that as we've had software-based systems in cars, but nothing like the software that we're now seeing with Tesla. So there needs to be a, a mindset change with how we think about vehicles and the technology in vehicles. Um, I think NHTSA are moving there, but they're moving very slowly. Um, and this is actually sort of akin to some of the things that Elon Musk says. We've got to think about automotive um, companies and vehicles less as traditional vehicles and more like complex packages of either robots on wheels or software systems on wheels. Um, and as soon as we've made that shift, we can begin to think, I think, more imaginatively about what safety means in terms of the overall package. In terms of that overall package, sometimes I think of, of safety, this is getting more akin to software on wings. So, right. uh, so maybe along those lines, like the FAA has a, uh, a regulatory structure where it, it pre-certifies new aircraft before they are put into production. So do we need a similar approach to automated driving? Automated I think, driving? yeah, I... You know, I think it's a really interesting question. Of course, the FAA are ultra-cautious um, for good reason. You really don't want aircraft falling out of the, the sky, and we've seen how devastating that is. Um, I think we're a little bit secure with a vehicle that's already on the road. It's got nowhere to fall to. But of course, it is still dangerous as it goes along at anything above 15 or 20 miles an hour. So I think exploring approaches like that is going to be important. At the same time, I think there is a danger of stymieing innovation if we're too cautious. So for instance, if we had an approach like FAA where you've basically got to have everything pre-approved before you implement it, it is incredibly hard to innovate. And it would certainly stop the innovation we're seeing with companies like Waymo and Tesla and others. Staying with Tesla for just a moment, uh, fundamentally, is the only difference between Tesla's approach to testing highly automated driving systems and others a matter of who's in the driver's seat, or the presence of someone hired as a safety operator versus a regular car owner? That's an interesting question. Um, Yes, on one level, that is perhaps the only difference, apart from the fact that the, the implementation looks extremely different. So um, say you take a case like Waymo, where they've done a lot of testing with a safety driver there, you've got somebody who actually has a very clear responsibility for what that car does. They have training, they're professionals, versus the beat testing approach of, of Tesla. Yes, they're, they're pre-vetting the people that get to sit behind the wheel, but beyond that, they really have very little 
control over them. Now, that gives Tesla an advantage because these beta testers are really pushing the envelope of what is possible. So the system is learning very, very fast, but it's also a high risk approach. I'm going to go off on a bit of a tangent for a moment, if you will forgive me. Mm. Um, when you were introducing yourself, you mentioned other types of domains that um, also involve innovation and risk, such as gene editing, yep. et cetera. So are there examples from other domains that provide direction or context for rolling out new products or innovations in a safety-critical environment? Let's say food safety, for example. Sure. Um, actually, there aren't. We've, we've really struggled with this, especially over the last 20 or so years, as the, the pace of technology innovation has accelerated so fast. Um, and we've seen challenges to fairly rigid regulatory structures, and we've seen some sort of uh, slight sort of bending and slight opening of those and some really interesting ideas. But it's surprising how few examples there are of effective ways of creating regulatory structures where we can be flexible. Now, having said that, I, some of the thinking here is interesting, and it hasn't quite tipped over to, to implementation. So there's a whole area of thinking around agile governance. The idea that if you really want to see the social benefits of technology innovation, you can't afford to put regulatory barriers in place, yet at the same time, you've got to ensure that these technologies are safe. So we need agile approaches to this, very, very different from old-fashioned rigid approaches. And one of those is the idea of sandboxing. You create an area where you're going to relax the, the rules to allow companies to experiment and you learn from that. So in a sense, that's partially what's happened in Arizona with self-driving vehicles. The, the regulations around vehicles on roads have been relaxed a little bit for these companies so they can actually experiment on the roads and learn from that. I was just thinking of Arizona as a good example of that, Andrew, because uh, obviously there was an executive order, I think, in 2017, 2018 that really opened up Arizona as, as a sandbox. Right. And of course, right in your backyard in, in Tempe, there was the, the Uber crash that, that killed a pedestrian during self-driving right. testing. So um, that really backfired, yes. <laughs> well, I mean, yes, and you know, that kind of goes back to the earlier question about, you know, how about this one fatality versus the, the greater good? Um, you know, maybe along those lines, what lessons were, were learned from that particular incident, if, if any. Sure. Uh, so there, there were multiple lessons. One is um, a harsh lesson to Uber. Do not go fast and break things because you will suffer. So Uber had to completely pull out of that market because of the, the regulatory and the public pressure as a result of that, that crash and that death. Um, but that was largely a problem. It was a human problem and it was an organizational problem rather than a, a technological problem. So yeah, they learned a hard lesson, but we also learned that public opinion really matters here. You can think that you've got the best technology on the roads, but if you're not thinking about how people are perceiving that technology and the impacts on their lives, you're going to hit a barrier which is going to be really hard to overcome. Yeah, it kind of leads to another question about, about influencing that public opinion, winning that community support. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, another example from Arizona is uh, Waymo has been testing there much more cautiously, no Yes. No incidents like that, but there have been incidents where where people have thrown sticks and stones at the Waymo vehicles <laughs> that, that they're they're testing in their backyard, so to speak. So, uh, you know, I think that really speaks to what you're saying. Uh, there is this public opinion out there that matters that is a hard variable to control. 
Absolutely, yes. And I, as companies are learning, it's a case of building trust. It's, it's not so much PR as working with communities. So you've got that level of trust where people understand that you're a company that's not only trying to do the right thing, um, but you're doing it in a safe and responsible way. And actually with Waymo, yeah, despite the fact that a few people decided to throw sticks and stones at them, there haven't been too many incidents like that. And most people seem to be accepting or intrigued, accepting of the technology or intrigued by the technology because Waymo have put so much effort into building community trust. You know, I'm curious back to the, the Uber example real quick. Uh, are humans just bad at monitoring technology that works pretty good most of the time? And how do we account for that in this, in this era, whether it's for testing or, or for these driver assist systems that are getting increasingly more sophisticated? We, yeah, I guess, so there are multiple parts to this. Um, the first thing is that I think we're really bad at making sense of technological risks. I mean, I, again, so I, I work a lot in risk and quantitative risk, and even I find it hard to work out what the numbers mean here. And then when you look at sort of uh, the way our brains think, it is incredibly hard to negotiate through this. Um, and this is where it comes to sort of talking about sort of building trust and acceptance more than just looking at the risk. But then the other aspect is when we go through this transition, so now you're looking specifically at the people behind the wheels. Um, as we go through this transition between human driving and fully autonomous driving, it is incredibly hard for humans to fill that gap. So again, you go back to the Uber crash. Part of the problem there was the safety driver wasn't attentive enough. Not surprising. I mean, have you ever tried driving for a few hours where your hands are sort of hovering over the steering wheel, but you're not fully there, but you've got to be ready to intervene at a moment's notice? I mean, for most people, it's hard enough to pay attention to the road when they do have the hands on the wheel. You're just adding in multiple layers of complexity here. So this is a transition, I think, which is quite hard to get through. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back with our conversation with Andrew Maynard. This episode is sponsored by Gentex Corporation, a global technology company that supplies nearly every major automaker with advanced electronic features that optimize driver vision and enhance driving safety. Digital vision features like Gentex Full Display Mirror, an intelligent rear vision system that uses a custom camera and mirror-integrated video display to optimize a vehicle's rearward view. Connected car features like Homelink, the industry's most widely used and trusted vehicle-based wireless control system that uses radio frequency and or cloud-based wireless control to operate garage doors, gates, home lighting, thermostats, security systems, and other compatible home automation devices. All from three buttons, smartly integrated into your vehicle's interior. And dimmable glass features like automatic dimming rear view mirrors that use sophisticated light sensors, proprietary gels, and microprocessor-based algorithms to darken the mirror to the precise level necessary to eliminate dangerous rear view mirror glare. The development and delivery of these features have improved driver convenience and safety around the world. Visit www.gentex.com to check out the latest in digital vision, connected car, and dimmable glass technologies. Now back to our conversation with Andrew Maynard. I have a, another question for you, Andrew. Um, 
do you think that one approach or the other enhancing the skills of a human driver versus removing the role of a human in the driving process is a safer approach so i'm really biased here in favor of improving human drivers um but let, let me qualify that by saying I'm excited about self-driving cars. Um, the, the last time I went in a fully self-driving Waymo, I was grinning all the way. This is pretty cool technology. So I'm excited about that future. But on the other hand, I think there's masses we can do to help people be better drivers. I, we really do not train people well to be safe on the roads. Andrew, does this kind of get into some of the work you do at Arizona State in uh, evaluating risk, improving risk thresholds, uh, Give us some idea of some of the work that you're doing these days, because I know sure. broad even within Arizona State University context. Yeah, so the work that I do around risk is really exploring innovative ways of thinking about risk, um, and this pays plays directly into this. Um, so one of the things that that has long intrigued me with new technologies is that we cannot apply conventional ways of thinking about risk to them. So usually, when you think about risk and risk management systems, you ask, "Is this going to kill somebody?" Is it going to harm them? Is it going to harm the environment? Is it going to lose money? And we've got really good ways of dealing with that with conventional technologies. We're poor with emerging technologies, so we need new frameworks. But even more importantly, it turns out that the risks that are important with emerging technologies usually aren't the things that we measure. So you get back to things like public perception, which is important. No, or Very few people think about doing a risk analysis around public perception. You've got reputational risk. You've got threats to identity. So take something that may seem very trivial. You look at why people drive and a lot of people drive to get from A to B, but a lot of people get pleasure out of the process of getting into their car and driving. There's deep value to them in being in control of their vehicle. So when you start talking about replacing their vehicle with a fully autonomous vehicle, you're threatening something that's important to them. And that's another way of thinking about risk. So this is the sort of things we do. We ask, what is important to people that is being threatened? How do we understand that? And how do we navigate around it? How does that play into uh, advice or a framework that you might give uh, an entrepreneur or, or startup company and, and helping them evaluate how they want to roll out a product? Uh, yeah. Not just in terms of risk, but do they want to take a conservative approach? Do they want to be an outlier like a Tesla, for example? Yeah. So the, the way we approach it um, when we're working with innovators, entrepreneurs, is to first of all ask them, where are you going? Where do you want to get to? So think about sort of a, a map in your head and think about where you are now and where you're heading. And then we ask them to think about what are the obstacles in your pathway. And we do that by asking them to think about what's important to you, what's important to your investors, what's important to your consumers, and what's important to the communities that you're going to be touching. Because as soon as you've got an idea of what's important to these people, you can ask yourself, what are you doing that potentially threatens those things that are important? And as soon as you understand how you might threaten them, you can work out how to reduce those threats. So it's, it's almost like sort of enlightened self-interest in where these days, if a company understands how they might be treading on somebody else's toes, they can work out how to avoid treading on those toes and still get to where they're going. I'd like to hear more about the work that you're doing at Arizona State. I mean, what else is ASU working on in this realm, be it um, the Risk Innovation Lab or the College of Global Futures 
or beyond? And how does it all come together? Yeah, so ASU is such an interesting place because we have so many things going on. Um, so to start with on the risk side, yes, we're, we're looking at these different approaches to risk um, very, very proactively. But then that ties in with more broadly how we think about innovation in society. So the, the school I'm in, the, the School for the Future of Innovation in Society and the broader college, the, uh, the College of, of Global Futures, asks critical questions about what sort of future do we want? What sort of society do we want in the future? How do new technologies play into that? Where are the pitfalls and where are the dangers? And so when it comes to, to self-driving vehicles, we have a number of people asking these critical social questions around what can go wrong and how do we make sure it goes right? But then we butt that into the technologists. So we also have people working on the technologies underpinning both autonomous vehicles, but more importantly, critical infrastructure systems, asking bigger questions around what do you want the future of transportation to be like? How are we going to get from A to B? If we could redesign this future um, and sort of forget about the mistakes we've made of the past, what is this going to look like? What excites us about it? One thing you mentioned at the beginning that you started off as a physicist. You're a physicist by training. Right. So how did you become interested in these topics of the nature of innovation and risk? Can you walk us through that? Oh, I, um, I, I, I got sidetracked and seduced somewhere along the way. Um, so um, for, for multiple reasons. I, one of the things that I love about being trained as a physicist and working in that area is um, fundamentally physics is about how you think. It's not about numbers and, and equations, but it's how you think about the world in a connected and an integrated way and how you get excited about different, um, different ways of thinking about the world. So I managed to make the transition from working in a physics lab with that sort of way of thinking to thinking about bigger problems. So these days, I still call myself a physicist because I'm still intrigued with thinking about how the world works in novel ways, but now there's more than mechanical systems. There's biology there, there's technology, there's innovation, there's economics. So um, I've, I've done the thing that many physicists do in terms of applying my training and how I think to much bigger challenges and opportunities. At least that's, that's my story. And, but fundamentally, at the end of the day, I get up and do these things because I'm really intrigued by questions that I don't know the answers to and opportunities that lie between the conventional ways of thinking. One of the ways you've applied that thinking is in your writing. Uh, we mentioned at the outset that you're also an author. And one of the books that you've written is Films from the Future, the Technology and Morality of Sci-Fi Movies. Right. So I am curious uh, on that particular book, uh, how does sci-fi introduce us to some of these ideas of societal change and maybe the ethical best way to, to introduce these changes? Yeah, what, lovely segue. And I should say from the, the outset, seeing that we're talking about self-driving cars, one of the things I do not cover in that book, and I actually make a point of saying in the book I do not cover this, is self-driving cars just because I couldn't fit it in. Um, but so one of the things that I grapple with in my work is how do we collectively build the future we want? How do we understand how to think about our connection with the future? How do we develop those uh, future building skills in a really complex world? And it turns out you can't do that through conventional thinking. So the way that we've trained people in the past simply does not give us the skills to think in the ways that are necessary to build the future we want. We have to come up with alternative ways. And it turns out that 
sci-fi movies are an incredibly good catalyst for alternative thinking. Um, and they're a catalyst not because the technology in them is right, usually it's wrong, but because they capture the essence of what it means to be human and what it means to be part of a community in a rapidly changing world. So when you begin to look at these movies in terms of the lessons we can learn about what works and what doesn't and how to think and how to create what we aspire to, it becomes a very powerful way of getting people to think about what they can do to be part of building that future. Uh, so this is what the book does, and this is what I, I do with my students. I start off with the sci-fi movies, and we use that to explore what's happening in specific areas of technology innovation, what happens at the intersection between those areas, what the amazing possibilities are, what the challenges are, and how we need to think as humans and society about how we navigate those challenges. Andrew, so you've taken the, the book that we just discussed and there's some practical applications that, that you foresee for it or at least hope to foresee. Tell us what you did with the book. Oh, sure. Yeah. So um, last semester, my, my class that I teach around sort of movies in the future, we decided that we were so excited about Elon Musk's ideas about the Tesla bot, this, this new humanoid robot, um, that we want to see it succeed, but we also want to make sure that they understood the social challenges here. So we sent the Tesla bot team a box of 28 copies of films from the future with a very nice note signed by the whole class. It's probably sitting in a warehouse somewhere, but maybe one day the team will open that box and realize this is the answer to all their problems as they develop this robot in socially responsible ways. Was there, was there something behind the number of 28 specifically? That's an interesting That's, number. I, I, actually, I think it's 27 um, books. It's the number of books in a carton. But see, uh, I also decided I would slip in a special present for Elon Musk himself, um, which is a signed copy of an Ian M. Banks novel, um, I, because Elon loves Ian M. Banks. So again, I'm expecting that one day, somewhere in the future, somebody's going to stumble across this and either pass it on to Musk or realize that this was a huge lost opportunity that I'm sure Elon Musk would be very upset about if he heard about it. Well, maybe he's listening on the podcast today and we can expedite delivery of the, uh, of the books. <laughs> uh, yes. You know, Andrew, there's obviously a lot of interest right now in space travel and mm. commercial space development. And it's ironic that one of the biggest figures now in space travel is William Shatner from Star Trek. Right. <laughs> And um, how does Star Trek influence how we think about space travel or interplanetary travel? Oh, that's, that's an interesting question. Of course, Star Trek has had a massive social influence over the, the decades, um, both in terms of inspiring us to think about what it would be like to, to travel off the Earth and, and outside the solar system. And it's inspired generations just thinking about the possibility. But it's also inspired people to think more critically about the nature of future society. And so that really sort of interesting, weird intersection between sort of technological aspirations um, and what it means to be a whole and responsible human um, have really driven a lot of thinking. Of course, William Shatner sort of captures a lot of that, uh, sort of especially in his sort of later post-Star Trek persona. So it was really quite moving, sort of seeing his experience of going up into space and seeing how it, it affected him deeply and emotionally in terms of how he sort of then saw the position of Earth and humans on Earth with respect to space and the possibilities moving forward. Andrew, you are a scientist, professor, author, mentioned your multiple podcasts. 
What is the best way for our listeners uh, who are interested to follow your ongoing work? Um, so if you want to get the brief overview, um, I would say visit my website, andrewmaynard.net, um, or just Google me, and it sounds awful to say that, um, simply because I have sort of multiple threads. But threads. But if you go to andrewmaynard.net, it'll tie you in both to my research as well as my public writing, including the, the podcasts. Super. Well, thank you so much for spending a few minutes with us on our podcast today. A really fascinating conversation uh, and appreciate the time. This has been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you again to Andrew for joining us today. Leslie, I, I really enjoyed that conversation. My head is still spinning a bit. What, what were your top takeaways, if, if any, right now? Well, you know, I'm going to say something about the science fiction because, you know, he had me at science fiction. <laughs> he had me at sci-fi. Any sort of um, look ahead to the, the future. I love that. I also thought it was really, really good, the, the analogy he made between teenage drivers who are just now learning the road to some of the self-driving systems or supposed self-driving systems that are out there, in particular, the Tesla FSD. I thought that was pretty enlightening. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I really enjoyed that. One of the things that I took away was the interesting thought to me was that there's not a whole lot of other realms uh, that we can really compare this particular situation to. And uh, I kind of expected maybe there would be, but Andrew really uh, put a damper on that. So that, that's one thing that I, you know, I kind of take away is just how unique this, uh, this sphere of transportation technology is right now. And that's a really good segue, Pete, to uh, discussing what's coming up next week. Can you give us a preview? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, next week, joining us on the podcast will be Chang Lu. He's the CEO of self-driving truck company Too Simple, which uh, just this week announced a partnership with the Union Pacific Railroad. So another area of interconnectedness where we see uh, modes of transportation complementing each other, probably even as rail and trucking obviously compete with each other. So, so a lot to explore on that particular news and much more next week. That is it for today. Thank you so much to Josh Fried, our producer, and for our listeners who are tuning in today. We will be seeing you next week.